Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you haven't been with us, we've been working through the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. We don't always do this on Wednesday nights, but why don't we do this? Why don't we stand for the reading of the Word of God? Malachi 2, I think it'll be behind me as well, but here's uh, the New American Standard, beginning in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? 2.11 Judah has dealt treacherously as an abomination and has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, 14, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce. And this is where that famous uh, line comes from that many of you have heard before. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Malachi 2.16. The God of Israel who and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and our doing of it as well. Uh, I kicked around a lot of different titles uh, I was going to do the I Hate Divorce title, and then I went back and forth on ideas of commitment and covenant and faithfulness, but I landed on truth or treachery with a question mark, because this passage is actually filled with the word treachery. Uh, In fact, the word treacherously appears five times in this section, and maybe you notice in verses 10, 11, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, treachery is an ugly word, is it not? I mean, it's something that when we hear it, we think of betrayal. We think of someone who has uh, kind of moved in the shadows and committed wrong. And uh, that's the idea of the word. It's bagad in Hebrew. And it's one who's deceitful, faithless, covert, one who pillages, offends, someone who is a betrayer. A New Testament picture of a man like this is a man named Elimus in the New Testament. Hold your place in Malachi and go to the book of Acts chapter 13. Let me just give you, I think, to find a biblical picture of a face of treachery is important. And we, we have an example in Acts chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 13. Let's pick up the account in verse 6, and it reads this way. When they had gone through the whole island, Acts 13, 6, as far as Paphos, they found a magician, Acts 13, 6, a Jewish false prophet. So notice he was a Jew, but he was a magician, and he was a false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, interesting name, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He was a man of intelligence, This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, the two missionary partners early in the book of Acts, and he sought, Sergius Paulus did, sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, filled with political correctness, (laughs) as you'll see in a moment, who was also known as Paul. That was his Roman name, and it means little. He was actually filled with the Holy Spirit. He fixed his gaze on him, that is the false prophet, and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, 
You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened. What was he amazed at, though? He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I'm sure he was amazed by the miracle, but also notice the emphasis once again on the teaching of the Word of God. Here is a man of treachery. This gives you a face of one who is treacherous. He was whispering in the ear of the proconsul. He was trying to lead him away from hearing and embracing the Word of God. That's why Paul called him a son of the devil. Because that's what the devil does. He tries to question the word of God, distract us from the word of God, etc. Back to Malachi chapter 2. And so there was treachery going on in the land of Israel, Malachi 2, namely in the tents of Jacob and namely among the children of Israel. And it really found its way into the marriage covenant. And so a lot of what we will talk about tonight is being true to the marriage covenant for those of you who are married. And just as a general look at the new covenant and the marriage of the lamb and his bride, the church. Uh, After years and years of pastoring and doing many weddings and uh, taking in a lot of different Bible teaching and hearing a lot of different quotes, this is one that stuck with me, and it is this. The defining characteristic of a person's life is summed up in one word, and that word is commitment. Commitment is the defining characteristic of a person's life. Now, you might debate me and say, well, maybe it should be love, but commitment is an expression of love, and commitment will define you. If you're a committed person, if you're consistent, and some of you, you know, we're all trying to grow in our consistency, no doubt, with, you know, letting our yes be yes and our no be no, etc., But commitment or a lack thereof will define you. And so what was happening in Israel is a lack of commitment. Another way to say commitment is faithfulness. Faithfulness speaks of loyalty. It speaks of a person that can be counted on. Uh, It's the Greek word pistis, and it speaks of a loyal, dependable person. And this is what the Lord is. The Lord is faithful who called you. The Lord is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Faithful is the one who called you, and he will bring it to pass. And this is interesting because faithfulness is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a little advertised fruit, but it is the seventh fruit of the Holy Spirit is faithfulness. So sometimes when we hear about commitment and faithfulness, we think, oh, I got to get better. I got to do more. I got to be better. Actually, you need to yield more to the power of the Holy Spirit because it is that power that will make you a faithful person. And I'm sure that those of you who have been growing in the Lord have noticed that. You are more faithful than you've ever been before. Maybe you're not where you want to be, but you know you're not the man or woman that you used to be. And that's because the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And so the themes here are commitment, covenant, faithfulness, and treachery. Let's pick it up in verse 10, Malachi 2. The question is asked, do we not all have one father? You'll notice in the New American Standard, father is not capitalized. And so it could be that this is a point back to Abraham, to the father of the Jewish nation. Some people would say Jacob because the tents of Jacob are mentioned in this text. But notice it says, has not one God created us? Because the focus is Judah or Israel here, uh, it may be that the one father is Abraham, and it's speaking to the patriarchs of the group. But notice it, it does say, has not one God created us? And we could all say that that's true of us. We have one creator. So there is a human family. We are all in one sense part of one family coming from one man and one woman, because from one man, God made every man and every nation. And that is from Adam, and that is from Eve. We all come from one. We are one in that sense. 
The Jewish nation is one in a different sense because they all come from Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and they have their origins from the 12 tribes. And so here's what was happening. With the question, do we not all have one father? Are we not a family? Has not one God created us? And then notice, why do we deal, and here's our word, treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers. Now we get further verification that the fathers there are the patriarchs. And something was going on in the land of Israel where people were being unfaithful to one another. Now here we are, we're not, uh, we're not the Jewish nation, we're a group of largely Gentiles. Some of you may have Jewish origins, but we are the church. But we are part of a new covenant community. And you and I have responsibilities to one another. Did you know in the New Testament, there are 59, no less than 59 one another commands. We are to love one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to pray for one another. We're to be hospitable. You can look up the 59 one another commands. So minimally, the responsibility that I have to you and you to me is at least 59 categories or 59 one another commands. Now, I'm not sure that the average Christian sees that responsibility. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one kingdom to build, one spirit that lives in all of us. Amen? And thus, we have responsibilities one to another. And part of our responsibility is to love one another and to be unified and speak the truth in love. There's many things that we could talk about. Well, Israel as a community and the covenant that they, uh, you know, might be being mentioned here, if you look at the end of verse 10, the profaning of the covenant of our fathers. We're not to profane that covenant. Here, the profaning of the covenant of the fathers probably speaks to the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant made at Sinai. But that was the common thing that brought them together, was the Torah, was the law of God. Summarized in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that was entrusted. The oracles of God were entrusted to the people of Israel. But they were being treacherous to one another and treacherous to the covenant. They were being unfaithful. There's a backdrop in Nehemiah 13. If you're taking notes uh, something very similar, and this was just a little bit before the book of Malachi unfolds. And here's what was happening in Israel. People were dishonoring the Sabbath day, and they were marrying outside of the faith. The issue was not so much that they married a foreigner. The issue was that they were marrying outside the faith. And so here's the deal. With Israel, they were called to marry or to be equally yoked. They were to marry someone who had, first and foremost, a covenant agreement with Yahweh. We can see in the book of Ruth, Ruth is a Moabitess, but she embraces the God of Israel. And therefore, Boaz had no issues of marrying her. But here, what was happening is Israelite men, namely those in Judah, were seeing good-looking women who were pagan women. And this area was, uh, there were many foreigners in the land. And here was the problem. They were being enticed towards these foreign women who believed in gods other than the God of the Bible. So their spiritual commitment is actually the first foundation of this text. And I am always amazed at how many believers I have run into over the years who have ended up marrying an unbelieving spouse. Now, sometimes it's unavoidable because two people get married and then one of them becomes a Christian and you just find yourself in that position. But if you are single and you are a believer, you are to marry in the faith. Do you know why? Because if you don't, you will be yoked with someone who doesn't have the same priorities as you. And if you have any semblance of seriousness about your faith, I don't know how you could marry outside the faith because everything in your life has to have that foundation. Amen? The, the way that you, your time, your resources, the raising of your children, 
um, your allegiances, they all have to do with that foundation. And if you marry outside of that because the person is good looking or nice or whatever it may be, it usually doesn't go well. Now, sometimes a person has married an unbeliever and then they come to the faith and that does happen. But that is no guarantee. And I remember some years ago, I had a couple come in and uh, they wanted me to do a wedding and they sat down and I knew that the woman was a believer and I directly asked the man, are you a Christian? And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, then I can't marry you guys. And he said, well, it was worth a shot. And he got up and walked out of my office. And I thought, well, there's an honest dude at least. And he didn't waste any more of my time and I didn't waste any more of his. It was worth a shot. And he got up and failed. I'm not quite sure what was going on behind the scenes there. But here's what verse 11 says. It says, Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel. Judah is the southern part of Israel, the southern kingdom. So around, around Jerusalem. Has been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now here we're starting to get to the heart of the issue. And the issue is spiritual adultery. Now, I'm not sure what to make of the sanctuary of the Lord, but I do know that many of you know that when Ezekiel was given an insight into what was happening in Jerusalem, the, a hole was dug in the wall. And do you remember when he got to look in there, he saw that even in the temple, there were people who were worshiping foreign gods and goddesses. And abominable practices were happening even inside the temple defiling the sanctuary of the Lord. And so this is a little bit of what's going on here is that the worship of Israel had been desecrated by the bringing in of idolatry. Take a look at the end of verse 11. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, what does that mean? Well, a foreign god, notice that it has a small g, is a god outside the god of Israel. So the, some of the foreign gods were the Baals, the Asherahs. Uh, there was Molech. There were a lot of these false gods that were in the land. And God warned Israel, when you go into the land, I don't want you to imitate the abominable practices of the people. You can read, for example, Deuteronomy 18. And so here's what was happening. The, some of the men in Israel were committing adultery on their wives, but ultimately committing spiritual adultery against their God, the true God, that is the God of Israel, or against their one God, one creator, or one father. In other words, they were divorcing him to commit idolatry with these false gods. And this is a category in our Bibles that many of you are familiar with, and is the idea of spiritual adultery. That when we turn our back on God and put an idol alongside God or above God, we are essentially cheating on him. We are elevating things above him. We're saying, well, you're going to be somewhere down here and this will be my God or that will be my God. And in America, we could talk about possessions. We could talk about money. We could talk about power. We could talk about, you know, how sometimes we determine everything by the way something looks or what it does for us. And when Israel got in trouble, it was because idolatry and spiritual adultery ended up permeating the land. Here's an example. King Ahab married Jezebel. This is 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33. It says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. He erected, did Ahab, an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, 
which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. By that one act of that one man, marrying that one woman, Jezebel, he brought evil upon the whole kingdom and it permeated or it went out from the palace, if you will. Ahab compromised himself and it was his demise and really the demise of the nation. Many of you remember that uh, Solomon married many foreign women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Some of them, they say he did it for political reasons. But anyway, he had all these foreign women. And 1 Kings 11, if you're taking notes, says that those women, because Solomon tried to appease them, turned his heart away from God. This is what will happen if you marry someone who is not yoked up with you spiritually. In all likelihood, they will turn your heart away from God. You want someone who will lead you toward God, someone who's yoked going in the same direction with you. Jeremiah 9, 1 and 2 says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had a desert, a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men, Jeremiah 9, 1 and 2. God put up with it for some time, and then he brought judgment on his people because of this sin. And verse 12 says, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, so that's Israel's community, if you will, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So basically anyone who's doing this and trying to feign like he's still a true worshiper of God, may he be cut off from God's people. What does that mean? May he be booted out of the covenant community is the idea. Because he's a phony. He's bringing his worship, she's bringing her worship into the holy place, but has no intention. In other words, what they're doing is simply a show. If you can be out in the world overtly sinning against God and then come to check in with the Lord and drop your money in the dish, as it were, and say, I'm good because look what I dropped in. That ain't going to do it. Because the Lord wants obedience rather than sacrifice. Amen? He wants your heart first and foremost. And this is another thing you do connected to verse 12. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. It's something like this. You come into the temple boo-hooing because you have a sense that God is no longer listening to you or accepting your offering. Why? It's something like this. It's called the altar of the Lord. So there was a pagan way of doing this where you would weep and groan and some form of pagan worship, but it's the altar of the Lord. So here's what it is. It's a person who goes in, has a sense that the Lord is not favorable toward them, puts an offering down and begins to weep. There's tears that are flowing. Oh God, do you hear me? Oh God. And they do all this show, but God is far from them. Why? Because the moment that they walk out of the holy place, they're living in rebellion toward God. And the two cannot coexist. I'm not talking about a genuine struggle with sin. I'm talking about someone who has no intention of repenting. This is Hebrews chapter 12, and it speaks of Esau. It says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, Hebrews 12, 11, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and many by it many be defiled. Here's the example. 
that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Hebrews 12, 17. He was crying. You know why he was crying? Because he lost the birthright and the blessing. But do you know why he lost them? Because he was an idiot. He was a fool. Because he let his carnal desires be elevated above the things of the Spirit. Because in the moment, he decided that he would prioritize some stew over what he rightfully had. And then all of a sudden, when he lost it, he was boohooing about it. But he knew exactly what he was doing in the moment. And then when he sought to get it back, it was too late. And he could cry all day and all night. And it wasn't going to change what had occurred. If you continue to live in sin and attempt to use rituals as appeasement to God, it will not work. Excuses, offerings will mean nothing if that's what you're up to. Some of the people were bringing their offerings with tears. They had sensed that they had been cut off, but they weren't willing to change. And the proof is going to be in the pudding if you're willing to change. I was reading J. Vernon McGee, and he put it this way. He said that he was talking about prodigals, and he said uh, prodigals who have a heart to come home to their father will only stay in the pig pen for so long. In other words, prodigals will get out of the pig pen. At some point, you'll, you'll say, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm, I'm going to repent. But if you can stay in the pig pen, then there's going to be no change, though your father waits for you. And so notice this response. It's in verse 14, and it's the back and forth style of this book. Yet you say, for what reason or why? Why has this all happened? Why the cutting off? Why the not honoring of the offering? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now we're getting very specific. Against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, if you have an NIV, your partner and your wife by covenant, and the NIV adds by marriage covenant, which is definitely the context, which is the idea of the wife there. Here's the problem. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've dealt treacherously with her, though she was your partner and your wife by covenant. Is this a feigned surprise? Should a man or a woman who is unfaithful to their spouse think that anything else would happen but this? That God would be displeased? This is 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel, since she is a woman. Literally, she's the feminine one. Grant her honor, 1 Peter 3, 7, as a fellow heir of the grace of life, listen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you can treat your wife in a treacherous way, or your husband, and then you think that you're going to make some grandiose prayer to God, and God is just going to shower blessings down upon you, you are mistaken. In fact, Peter says he won't even hear you. If you don't understand her as the weaker vessel, literally the feminine one, she lacks the physical strength that a man has. A man has broader shoulders, etc. For example, you men, if you arm wrestled your wife, you better win. If you lose, you're pathetic. You need to go to the gym, right? Now, I'm not trying to put down the ladies here because I know every woman that I've met along my journey is a strong woman. But women are feminine. They are different. They are more sensitive. And what Peter is simply saying is this. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so you give her honor. You cannot treat her like dirt and somehow think that your spiritual life is going to be okay. You can't be a jerk to her and somehow think that God's going to shower blessings on your ministry or whatever you're up to at work, etc., the Lord is a witness. What does that mean? I want to take you to Genesis 31. Hold your place in Malachi. It's the very first book of the Bible. 
You guys all know that Jacob had a lot of challenges with Uncle Laban. Laban was not a very uh, faithful guy. He was a conniver, but so was Jacob. So it all came back to him, Genesis 31. We'll pick it up at verse 44, and I'm going to bring out some of this idea of the idea of a witness. God is a witness. Take a look, Genesis 31, 44. So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Genesis 31, 45. Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took the stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap, a covenant meal. Now Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it, called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, may the Lord watch between you and me and when we are absent one from another. If you mistreat my daughters, verse 50, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, behold, this heap Behold, the pillar which I have set between you and me. The heap is a witness. The pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm or you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. You can think of kind of a covenant sealing sacrifice here and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters, blessed them. Laban departed and returned to his place. This is the idea of a witness. It's captured in the symbol of the altar of rocks here, the thing that will mark it or in memoriam, if you will. It marks the occasion but the ultimate witness is God. So let me explain to you how it works. I'm standing up here, and I say to a group of people, we are gathered here with family and friends and this group of witnesses to uh, witness the joining of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And when I begin to take a, uh, a, a husband and wife about to be through the vows I am invoking the name of the Lord to be the ultimate sealer of this covenant, witness to this covenant, along with the community of friends and family that are there. And part of what the uh, oath will say is, you know, I promise to love you and be faithful to you. With God as my witness, I give you my promise. Now, I'm not sure that a lot of people understand at an altar like that, what exactly is going on in the heavenlies? But when you invoke the name of the God of the Bible and he ratifies the covenant that you have made with your lips, be sure that he takes that quite seriously. If you have read the Bible for any length of time, you know how important oaths and covenants are to the God of the Bible. Jesus put it this way, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. If you say something, be true to your word. That's what God wants. Well, the Lord was witness to all these covenants made, uh, all of these marriages that were made. But what did he become a witness to? Look at 14. Well, between the wife of your youth and you, because now you deal with her in treachery. You treat her uh, not the way she should be treated couple things to highlight. She's the wife of your youth. One writer says this heightens the heinousness of the treachery since it implies a long history of the wife's faithfulness to their husband. She's also called your companion and wife by covenant. Two important aspects of marriage here are covenant and companionship. The New Living Translation sums it up, and I think it's a good way to understand it. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Verse 14, Malachi 2. I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Now, I know that in our world and in our culture, uh, this, these are books that came out decades ago, 
people began to call this a divorce culture. You are looking at a man that comes from broken, divorced parents. My mom married my biological father, who bailed on the family when I was four years old. If I passed him on the street, I would not have known who he was. The only picture I have of him, I have on my phone right now, because my mom uh, had a picture way back when she was at her prom, and I have a picture of when my dad was 18 years old. But he was gone out of my life. And here's what happened. My dad cheated on my mom, and uh, there, there was a divorce that occurred, and I never saw my father again. I talked to him one time on the phone in 30 years. And I will tell you that that hurt, and I was bitter, and I was angry about it. And I didn't always even know the source of my anger, but I was angry. Uh, because, and I had even visions, I was playing a lot of baseball of, you know, that I would play for the Cubs because my family came from Chicago. And I'd be playing for the Cubs and my dad would see me on TV and he'd be sorry, right? That's, that's just what happens. But he bailed and then my mom remarried. And my mom re- remarried the second time a man who became the Dr. Pepper Bandit. Some of you have heard this story. He would go into convenience stores, he'd buy a can of Dr. Pepper and have a gun behind it. And he was robbing convenience stores. It was inconvenient for the convenience stores, but convenient for me because I was getting a lot of sports equipment uh, from a man who had kind of an average employment, but he, he seemed to have a lot of money. <laughs> we, know, we know now what was going on. Much of my glove, my cleats, they were all hot, as it were. Stolen. My mom remarried again for a third time after that second dad ended up in prison and my mom uh, couldn't hang on anymore with him and his shenanigans. And I will just tell you that I was a young teenager at that point and it wasn't the Brady Bunch, for those of you who know that uh, old TV show. It wasn't a great... He brought kids into the mix. My, My sister and I were there and it just wasn't good. Uh, and here, here's the point. There was, there's no other way to say it. There was treachery going on. There was a dishonoring of the covenant. And it had its ripple effect. And, I, and I'm talking to a group of people tonight, I'm sure that some of you are in the same boat. Uh, and, and here's what happens. There's brokenness and wounds and things that you thought you could depend on that become undependable, that then send kids reeling. And sometimes they blame themselves and they don't know what to do. And the only thing they've ever witnessed before is unfaithfulness. So then they follow those patterns and on and on and on it goes. But it doesn't mean that you're destined for that just because that's what you saw. And for some of us who became Christians maybe later in life, we can still be restored from mistakes we made. Amen? We can repent of those things and find new beginnings in Christ. But the treachery happening here in Israel was it was going on while people were feigning worship. And not one, back to Malachi 2.15, has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Some of this language is a bit difficult, but it says, take heed then to your spirit. Here's the solution. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Malachi calls for an end to these frivolous divorces. And here's something that you might uh, easily pass by, but it's in 2.15 of Malachi. What what did that one do who was seeking godly offspring? I want to park here because this has been pointed out by a couple of commentators. One of the the goals of a Christian family, a a Christian marriage, is to have godly offspring. Now, not everybody can have children, and some people adopt, and some of you end up having spiritual children in in other ways through discipleship and the like, and some some of us get to do that with grandchildren, great-grandchildren. But here's the point. When the two become one in a covenant marriage, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Those godly marriages then are to produce godly offspring who will then hold up the covenant. So some of you grew up in Christian households and mom and dad were always getting the Bible into you. And maybe they were throwing out memory verses uh, at an early age. Why? Because they felt a burden to make sure that you were grounded in the gospel. And I know for many of you who have who grew up in those contexts, you're grateful for it because your parents pointed you, and even if you got away from it, they pointed you to the light of the gospel. So did he not make them one, ESV, verse 15, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, ESV. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless faithless to the wife of your youth. One of the things that you're going to be challenged with as you go along in this life is you're going to be challenged in the area of faithfulness. Because one of the easiest things for the flesh to tell you is this. Wave the white flag and just give up. It's not worth it. That's not worth it. They're not worth it. It's not worth it. You're going to hear this voice come to you many, many times, brethren. It can come to you in ministry, in marriage, in friendships, in, you know, faithfulness, in, in church attendance, dot, dot, dot. And it will be this. It is just easy to wave the white flag. All you got to do is lay down and give up. But faithfulness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and those who walk by the Spirit will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And one of the lusts of the flesh is just to go the easy way, to give up, to have a little, you know, uh, adversarial situation go on and say, that's it, I'm done, I'm out of here. Only to go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And this is what was happening among the covenant people. Be very careful how you walk, Ephesians 5.15. Don't be unwise, but wise. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty of the text as we come down to the home stretch. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I'm going to read three different translations. NIV. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with a garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do, do not break faith. ESV has an alternate rendering. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now I will admit to you that in looking at commentaries and uh, kind of just hearing the different opinions. This is very difficult in the Hebrew to translate, hence the reason why we have different variations of the verse. The traditional rendering of verse 16 is God saying, I hate divorce. But here's something that we need to think through. Jesus allowed for divorce in Matthew 19. Moses permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 22, or Exodus 22. Ezra tells people to uh, he speaks of disillusion of certain marriages to foreigners in Ezra chapter 10. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, says, if an unbeliever leaves a believing spouse, the spouse is free. She's not, not under, you know, any, uh, she's not in bondage in those cases. So we've often talked about in Christian circles that there's an allowance for divorce when it comes to marital infidelity to abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. Uh, if there was drug abuse or abuse going on, we would counsel that woman or man to leave, get out of danger, not necessarily to divorce, but to leave so that you're not there as a punching bag for somebody, etc. But there's a lot, obviously, to take in and uh, concern yourself with in these cases. Here's why I bring this up. If the traditional translation of I hate divorce is incorrect, then for some of you that might take a little pressure off by knowing that 
God is not saying, I hate divorce in that specific sense of anybody that divorces, I just simply hate it. There's allowances for it in Scripture. We might say God hates what it does. It is never good, but sometimes it is necessary. I mean, for example, if you have a person who's married to someone who continues the same pattern over and over again, at some point you have to ask the question, how long do you hold on? Jesus made allowance for marital infidelity. Paul made allowance for abandonment, etc. So, for example, let's just say that someone's married and an unbelieving spouse leaves town and starts a life with another family and there's the believing spouse. What do I do now? Well, God hates divorce, so you certainly don't get divorced. Well, what do you mean? That person's already divorced you, right? So there's a lot of layers here, and I don't, I don't want to just kind of, you know, in five minutes try to summarize something that's very complicated. But I will just say this, that the idea of breaking the covenant, please hear me, is the main issue here. Not so much the divorce aspect, but the breaking of the covenant. God even, uh, this may surprise some of you, God even divorced the northern kingdom of Israel in Jeremiah 3.8. And there's also implications of that in Hosea 2.2, if you're taking notes. God even divorced his own people for their unfaithfulness to him. <laughs> However, God does forgive. There's always hope in Jesus Christ for restoration, for new beginnings. And you know the key to the whole thing? When God warns and God says, this is the way things should be done, this is what you need to do, when you see it for what it is, here's really the one thing that you need to do. In humility, cut it out. In humility, knock it off. And the Lord will have grace upon grace for you because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. You have wearied the Lord with your words, 17 final verse, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And some people in the community were saying, and maybe you've said this, even recently, where is God? Where's the God of justice? The very end of verse 17. Some people were watching this, maybe even the priests were doing, and they were, they were saying, what justice is there if that guy can cheat on his wife and there seems to be no repercussion? What hope do we have as a community? What hope do we have as a nation? Hey, look around. <laughs> look around. Because the ethics are not at an all-time high in America. Nor are they at an all-time high in the church. And the same God calls us to faithfulness. Where is the God of justice? We're going to see it in the next chapter as the messenger announces the coming of the Lord and says, who can stand before him when he comes? He's like a refiner's fire, man. We'll get into that next time. Pray with me, Father. Thank you so much for the group that's here tonight, those who are watching. I know this has been some tough, challenging stuff. We've all, we have to admit, in some way or another, we've all been unfaithful. Unfaithful to you, unfaithful to others. But thank you that you're patient with us, and thank you that you challenge us. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful. You challenge us, Lord, to be true to our commitments. And it is possible to do it, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's possible to be committed to someone for your whole life. It's possible to find joy for years and decades in the wife of your youth. It's possible and it's beautiful to love someone and have an intimacy with someone your whole life. And Lord, forgive us for the areas where we have fallen short. If you kept a record of our sin, none of us could stand. But thank you that you are a God who forgives and restores 
But you do call us to change. You don't call us to feign worship, to give or do rituals and think somehow they make us right. They don't. The gospel makes us right. But there are implications of the gospel as well. You, you save us by grace, but you call us to good works. So Father, help us, just like the people in Malachi's day, to be found faithful. And if there is need of repentance in our lives, let it start in our hearts. And thank you for all of those who are learning faithfulness and commitment, and that includes myself. Thank you for teaching me what it means to be faithful. You are faithful. Thank you that you were so faithful to save us when we were lost in our sin. You came on that rescue mission, and we celebrate that every single moment of every day. Your grace that saves and restores people who have broken covenant, people who have been unfaithful. Thank you for the new covenant in Christ, that he's paid the debt in full, that you're no longer counting our sins against us in him. And yet we know, Lord, that like even in the Revelation letters in chapters two and three, you challenge the churches. You say, you're doing this well, but this is something you gotta fix. And it's good to be corrected. It's healthy. Thank you for that. Lord, as we close here, and we're gonna have a moment to take of your supper, we remember your pierced body, your shed blood, how you were bruised and beaten, treated as if you had committed our sins, though you were completely innocent. Thank you for the exchange of our sin going to you and your righteousness coming to us through the cross and the resurrection. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. As we close, if you've not met Jesus, you need him desperately to be right with God. Trust in him today. Repent and trust in him for your salvation and start that journey of serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name.